Uh, obviously, uh, if race is sending people to death row uh, and uh, at the same time, the system uh, is uh, so flawed that it makes mistakes, even in uh, major cases like that, uh, then, uh, you know, uh, I think it raises a question whether uh, we should have a death penalty at all. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for joining us. I'm Craig Williams from sunny Southern California. And this is Bobby Ambrogi from a rather sticky uh, Boston, Massachusetts, uh, where I write a blog called Law Sites and also a blog called Media Law. And I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. I have a book out called How to Get Sued. And Bob, we'd like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Clio Web-Based Practice Management at GoClio.com, SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms at SunTrust.com slash law, and Firm Manager for LexisNexis at MyFirmManager.com slash LTN. Well, Bob, our coverage this week is going to be going back to 2009, where the North Carolina General Assembly passed the Racial Justice Act, a guarantee that no person would be put to death because of racial bias within the state's justice system. Since then, Republicans in the North Carolina legislature have fought to repeal the Racial Justice Act, citing clogged courts and unfounded claims by death row inmates. Well, this uh, this act has has certainly received extensive coverage from media outlets and, and bloggers, both within North Carolina and uh, and nationwide. Uh, particular uh, news organizations in in North Carolina have been covering this uh, quite a bit. Nathan Koppel at the Wall Street Journal Law Blog has written a number of posts about it, uh, and uh, it was in the news again this month because of a repeal effort. Uh, by Republicans in the state. Uh, that effort passed the House, but when it reached uh, uh, the, the Senate, uh, Senate, Senator Tom Apodaca, the Senate Rules Committee chairperson, uh, said the Senate already had a full plate of legislation, so uh, it did not move forward. It, the uh, North Carolina legislature is expected to take this up again in May of 2012. Well, according to the North Carolina Attorney General's Office, approximately 95% of the state's death row population has filed bias claims by the August 2010 deadline. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we'll take a look at this debate over the North Carolina Racial Justice Act and what this means for inmates on death row. And, uh, and this is a significant piece of legislation. I, I think if I, if, I, if I have my facts correct, this was only the second state to pass uh, this kind of a legislation. So we're going to talk about this what it means, the significance of it, with two guests uh, joining us today. Uh, first of all is Cassandra Stubbs, a senior staff attorney with the ACLU Capital Punishment Project. Uh, Cassie, as she prefers to be called, has served as lead and associate counsel on behalf of death row inmates and defendants in trials and appeals throughout the South, including North Carolina. Her clients have included Levon Bo Jones, a North Carolina death row inmate who was exonerated in 2008 when the state dismissed all charges against him. So I would like to welcome to the program Cassie Stubbs. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. And Bob, our next guest is James E. Coleman, Jr., the John S. Bradway Professor of Law at Duke University Law School and co-director of Duke's Wrongful Convictions Clinic. 
Jim teaches criminal law, legal ethics, negotiation, and mediation, capital punishment, and wrongful convictions. He is an active member of the American Bar Association and has been chair of the ABA Section of Individual Rights and Responsibilities, as well as the ABA Death Penalty Moratorium Implementation Project. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Jim Coleman. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, Jim, let's start off our show by discussing the passing of the 2009 Racial Justice Act. Can you give us a little bit of background about how this legislation came into being? Well, I, I think it was the result of a, uh, a cross-the-board effort by a lot of uh, organizations uh, in North Carolina that either deal with the death penalty or are concerned about the death penalty, as well as both Republican and uh, Democratic members of the General Assembly. Uh, I think all of them recognize that uh, you know there have been a number of studies over you know, many years uh, indicating that race uh, was a problem uh, with implementation of the death penalty in North Carolina, uh, and uh, they bit the bullet and uh, passed the legislation that uh, gives uh, inmates on death row an opportunity to challenge their death sentences uh, if they were affected by race. And Cassie, let me ask you and bring you into the conversation. If you could speak at all to to the situation in, in North Carolina, from from your experience, was uh, was race uh, perhaps uh, more or less a factor than than in other states in in death penalty cases? Well, I, I I'm not sure that I have a definitive opinion about whether it's more or less here in North Carolina, but I I do think that there has been there have been a number of studies and as well as case evidence that's pointed to the fact that there is a serious problem in North Carolina. There have been, there have been other studies in other states, and so I, I don't think that we should have any false confidence that because other states don't have this kind of law that they don't have these kind of problems. Um, I think what's special about North Carolina is that the legislature and the governor were moved to act and to actually address this problem and confront the problem that's really a long-standing historical one of the connection between race and the imposition of the death penalty. And, and so how does it work? What 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 rights uh, does this the, does the racial justice act give to uh, someone who's uh, is it when they're facing the death penalty or is it when when the death penalty has already been assigned in a case? So for going forward it's for people who are facing the death penalty they can raise the claim at, at the trial level. But the legislature also made the decision to apply this law retroactively. And they gave everyone on North Carolina's death row a one-year filing deadline. So by August of last year, everyone on North Carolina's death row who had some reason to believe that race played a role at the time of their sentence could file a claim alleging uh, action underneath the statute. The statute really has three pieces. It says that you can prove discrimination in jury selection, you can prove discrimination in charging decisions, or you can prove discrimination in the decision to impose the death penalty. And if you prevail in any of those, then you're entitled to a life without parole sentence. There'll be no retrial. There'll be nobody's getting out under the statute, but you will get off death row if you satisfy the, if you show enough evidence under one of those three prongs. How many inmates filed appeals? I don't know the exact number. I do believe that it's over 150. The, the majority of inmates did. And again, that's because of the breadth of the statute. So, for example, a defendant who maybe did not have strong evidence of discrimination against himself personally in his case 
might have strong evidence that there was discrimination against qualified African-American jurors in his case. There was a large study of North Carolina that was done and completed in time for the inmates to, to use it as part of their claims. And that study showed that there was widespread discrimination across the state in every county in jury selection, for example. So meaning that uh, somebody who belongs to a racial minority was was far more likely to receive the death penalty than somebody who does not. Well, in the jury discrimination claims, what it meant was that somebody who was belonged to a racial minority was far less likely to get chosen or be permitted to serve on a capital trial than than a white juror. The the researchers found that white jurors were um, more routinely seated, whereas jurors of color, and in, in particular African-American jurors, were struck by the prosecution at twice the rate that everyone else was. So when you show up for jury duty, you have a large strike against you if you're African-American, even if you are absolutely qualified in every other way to serve in the capital trial. Could I could I also just add to that, because I, I you stated that it uh, uh, perhaps the claims were based on uh, evidence that uh, racial minorities are sentenced to the death penalty uh, more frequently than uh, non-minorities. That that wasn't the evidence. Uh, it 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 focused instead on the race of the victim, uh, which is uh, uh, the factor that has a, a significant impact on who gets the death penalty. And within that, I. Uh, where a and, and and of course white victims are much more likely to result in a death sentence than uh, minority victims, but a, a racial minority who kills a white person is most likely to get the death penalty in North Carolina. What's the opposition to this statute? What are what are the critics of it saying uh, beyond saying that you know these 150 cases or so are clogging up the court system? Well, I, th- I think the campaign that the Republicans ran against the act uh, in the last election was dishonest, and I think that that's uh, you know that's not just my opinion. I think that's that's uh, that's a fact that uh, the, the newspapers across the state also uh, uh, concluded. Uh, you know, they they've tried to scare people by claiming that uh, a successful uh, litigant uh, would be released from death row. Uh, that's not true. I mean, the only relief is that the death sentence uh, is vacated and the person uh, is required to serve uh, life without parole. Uh, but I think the biggest problem with uh, the act from the perspective of the opponents is that uh, it requires a an honest uh, look at uh, race. Uh, and the impact that race has had uh, in administration of the death penalty in North Carolina. And I think that's a subject that a lot of people would rather not uh, uh, discuss. And just to add to Jim's comments, a lot of the resistance has been coming from prosecutors who underneath this act are really put individually on the hot seat. And so not only is race a difficult and uncomfortable topic for, for many people, but Prosecutors are now faced with having to address and have a public hearing, literally, on on potentially their own, even if it's unconscious racism. That's a, a difficult thing that, as you can imagine, no prosecutor is anxious uh, to have a hearing on. Well, I mean, I have to imagine that there would be very 
few people who would be on death row uh, who wouldn't have taken advantage of this. I mean, I would assume that this did, in fact, raise a, a large number of claims in, in the courts. Is, is that what happened? That That's correct. Uh, and, uh, you know, the reason for it is because there are three different ways that you can challenge the impact of race, one of which is uh, in the selection of the jury, uh, and that affects everybody on death row. But are you also saying that, that for example, a, a, a white prisoner on death row could have grounds under this statute to bring a, a, a challenge? Is, is yes. that correct? Am I hearing you right? That's correct. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and the, the case would be uh, a, uh, a white defendant uh, who is tried by a jury from which, uh, you know, black members of the uh, public are excluded. Uh, you know, that means that uh, he's been tried by a, uh, a jury that violated the Constitution. Uh, so, and, and that obviously affects, uh, affects, uh, a defendant, uh, uh, on the crucial decision whether to impose the death penalty or not. Uh, the prosecutors remove people who are much more likely to be empathetic. So, have, have the courts, in fact, I mean, have they started to process these cases? Have they, have they been processing them? What, what's been the impact on the court system in North Carolina of these? Cassie, what have you seen of that? Well, so far, uh, very minimal, really. Uh, all of these claims were filed, and there, in a couple of cases, in a couple of areas, are there are lead cases that are developing that are, I think, other judges are just waiting to see how that litigation unfolds. Um, for example, in Forsyth County, there was a hearing this winter about the constitutionality, and and a number of prosecutors around the state had been filing objections, raising various claims that the statute was unconstitutional. All of those arguments were heard by Judge Wood. Judge Wood rejected all of those arguments and found that the Racial Justice Act was constitutional. And now, in answers that we're seeing across the state, those arguments are really starting to fade away, because everyone recognizes that even though these claims are pending in states and in courthouses across the state, these issues are ultimately going to be resolved once by the Supreme Court. So the cases that are out front will go up. The North Carolina Supreme Court will make a ruling on, on, for example, whether the act is constitutional or not constitutional, and then that will be binding on everyone. Um, So I think a lot of the initial concerns about the the idea that these are clogging the courts, we've just not seen any evidence of that materializing at all. Well, there's a very popular case involving inmate Kenneth Bernard Rouse, who was found guilty back in 1992 for the stabbing death of Hazel Colleen Broadway. He's one of the many inmates who's filed a a claim. Uh, Jim, do you know about his case and can you discuss it? Uh, Yes. Uh, It's a, a case out of Randolph County. Uh, the, uh, Rouse was, uh, convicted, I think in 1992. Uh, he was convicted by an all white jury. Uh, and, uh, one aspect of the case, uh, that it was particularly troubling, uh, is that, uh, one of the jurors, uh, his mother had been, uh, murdered. The person who committed the murder, uh, was convicted and executed. Uh, and the juror hid that fact from the court, uh, was seated uh, on the jury that decided uh, to sentence Rouse to death. And when it was discovered, the 
uh, state continued to defend the fairness of the trial and the death sentence, uh, and ultimately, uh, Rouse lost on a procedural issue uh, so that no court uh, ever has examined the uh, uh, the issue and the impact of having uh, a white juror who basically uh, had an opportunity uh, to uh, sentence another black person uh, to death uh, after having experienced, uh, you know, the death of his mother in a, uh, in, in a in a murder case. Jim, one thing I'm wondering about as I'm listening to you discuss these cases is, is what rights uh, does this act give to uh, someone who's on death row or, or to a criminal defendant that, that, that the Constitution doesn't? I mean, what, how, how does this compare to what constitutional rights might apply in a situation in which perhaps racial bias somehow played a role in a, in a conviction? This, 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 the statute itself was actually a response to a 1987 uh, decision by the Supreme Court, uh, McCleskey, uh, in which the Supreme Court rejected the use of statistics uh, to challenge the constitutionality of the death penalty. Uh, statistics are used in other areas of the law, employment discrimination, for example, uh, where statistics are used to show in the aggregate the impact that a policy might be having it might be having on black employees. Uh, in the McCleskey case, the Supreme Court said that it was inappropriate to use uh, statistics, uh, at least as a constitutional matter, in order to uh, in order to prove a violation of the Constitution. Uh, but what Justice Powell did in his decision was to invite the states to deal with the problem through legislation. Uh, Kentucky was the first state uh, to do that, and North Carolina was the second. So, uh, in effect, uh, what the act does is to permit an inmate to use uh, not only direct evidence of race in his case, such as in the Rouse case, but also to show uh, statistically that race uh, has a an impact on who is sentenced to death, both statewide within the uh, judicial uh, district or within the county in which uh, the defendant was sentenced to death. Just to add to that, I think one of the important things that that this law accomplishes by that, by allowing statistical evidence, is that it really captures unconscious racism as well as traditional conscious racism. And if we look at Kenneth Rouse's case, we see that, you know, that excluded juror, he, he uses, he signed an affidavit saying that he uses routinely uh, racial slurs um, to refer to African Americans. He had, he made statements about um, black men and their rape of women. Very, what, what most folks think of when they think of racial animus and, and purposeful discrimination. And so that, that kind of evidence should be enough under the Constitution. And Mr. Rouse, just because of procedural reasons, his lawyer was late and missed the deadline. Um, those those claims have never been reviewed by a court. But what's new is that the under the statute, he can now also bring the statistical evidence that the that other players besides this one juror may have been influenced, even if not consciously but unconsciously, by race. And so, for example, we see in that county, 
a huge difference in the number of white jurors that are struck from jury service versus the number of qualified African-American jurors who are struck from jury service. And that's the kind of evidence that before the Racial Justice Act, we were not able to present in court and, and now can. We need to take a short break right now. We're going to be back in just a few moments to uh, talk more about the, the Racial Justice Act with our guest Cassie Stubbs from uh, the ACLU and James Coleman, professor of law at Duke University Law School. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in less than in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com slash legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Thanks for tuning into our program today. We want to let you know about something extraordinary happening in the legal industry. Right now, hundreds of independent attorneys just like yourself are working to bring a very special product to market. These attorneys are part of a development program at LexisNexis, and they are working under NDA on a brand new application that will change the way you run your practice. This solution, LexisNexis Firm Manager, is a web-based, highly secure application operating in SAS 70 Type 2 attested data centers. If you are interested in test driving LexisNexis Firm Manager at no charge, or to learn more, visit www.myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Need to reach lawyers on the go? Try marketing with new media here on Legal Talk Network. We can start the conversation for you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and shoot us an email or call us at 781-551-9960. 
Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams. Our guests today are Cassie Stubbs, a senior staff attorney with the ACLU Capital Punishment Project, and James Coleman, professor of law at Duke University School and co-director of Duke's Wrongful Convictions Clinic. Well, there have been an awful lot of cases where uh, DNA has come into play. What what relevance does that have in this situation? Well, I mean, I don't I don't know that it has any direct uh, uh, relationship to uh, the Racial Justice Act, but I think what it does uh, is to demonstrate uh, how often uh, we have been mistaken uh, in sentence in sentencing. It, well, convicting people and then sentence them to death. I mean, uh, a uh, more than a hundred people have been uh, freed from death row as a result of DNA evidence uh, indicating that they were innocent. And I think that what that's done is to uh, is to undermine confidence in our ability to fairly uh, administer a, a death penalty. And I think that. In, in terms of in terms of public concern, uh, obviously, uh, if race is sending people to death row, uh, and uh, at the same time the system uh, is uh, so flawed that it makes mistakes even in uh, major cases like that, uh, then uh, you know uh, I think it raises a question whether uh, we should have a death penalty at all. Well, you know, I mean, it raises that question. I guess one of the things I've been wondering uh, as, I'm, as I'm thinking about this law is is whether, uh, maybe I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit, but but whether by having a law like this, it, it somehow has the, the counter effect of making the death penalty seem more palatable to, to, to the citizens of the state, uh, that, that if, if they see, if they feel that the steps are being taken to eliminate, uh, say, racial discrimination and implementation of the death penalty, that, that perhaps they're more comfortable with the death penalty because of that. I mean, is there a counter a, a counter argument uh, along those lines, Jim or Cassie? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I think there is uh, that argument. And I think that as a result of that, some people have opposed the moratorium effort uh, that have, uh, that's been uh, mounted both here in North Carolina and in other states on the theory that uh, it suggests that the death penalty can be made fair. Uh, but I think those are two different questions. Uh, you know, in, in terms of the Racial Justice Act, uh, that's a very specific issue, whether race has uh, uh, been a factor in, in, in any person winding up on death row. Uh, the larger issue uh, is whether, you know, we can even afford uh, to uh, to try to uh, uh, create a death penalty uh, that is fair uh, and that uh, you know avoids uh, the the many problems that we know plagues uh, the the punishment now. And just to add to that, I I, I think that the, there is there is an important connection that between the Racial Justice Act law and and making the death penalty a, a more fair, if you want, institution, that it not only for folks who care about racial fairness, but but there is a lot of evidence that there's a direct link between concerns about innocence and r- racial justice issues. That here in North Carolina, I think part of the impetus to get the law passed was the fact that six of the seven exonerees and the last three recent ones 
um, were people of color. Five of the seven were African-American. And all of them, every single case where someone was released from death row, uh, who was innocent, found by the courts to have been innocent, and or or released because charges were dropped, all of them had white victims in their case. And there's a lot of social science research out there about the kinds of reasons why, particularly in capital cases, there's this risk that jurors juries may get it wrong, and those risks go up um, in cases with white victims and in cases with defendants of color. Does this statute actually does anything to prevent racial discrimination or is simply retrospective in nature? Well, one of the things that the statute does is it says that when the state is supposed to come forward with their evidence, so the defendant puts on their evidence of say, statistical evidence of bias in his or her county and in statewide, then it's the state's opportunity to rebut that evidence. And one of the pieces that the legislature specifically suggests would be relevant is any program implemented by the district attorney's office to address race. Um, For example, in the federal system, there was a, a push to redact race from all case files when they were making decisions about whether or not cases were death eligible. Um, their training programs, any of those kind of affirmative steps that offices would take. And, and we believe that that is the kind of action that would really be needed to, to confront this problem, um, would be not just a, a kind of promise by prosecutors, well, I'm not going to use race, because the truth is that race affects people both consciously and unconsciously. So it requires a, a deeper, more structural protections to, to try to root out the, the connection between race and, and how cases are, are tried and, and ultimately how convictions are won. On a very practical level, who's, who's handling all these cases? Where, where are the attorneys, uh, where are they being funded from? How are they being trained? I mean, where are you finding the, the, the legal support to handle these cases? Well, everyone... Uh, Everyone in North Carolina has a lawyer. Um, they, people on death row now have post-conviction counsel. And then there are a number of attorneys. I'm, I'm one of a group of attorneys who have volunteered their time pro bono to try to help um, coordinate some of the litigation or, in some cases, just monitor the litigation. Um, but there is an attempt to really try to control costs by having a smaller group of folks who are very well versed in the issues, able to consult, who are then able to consult in the individual cases. So to act as kind of mentors and, and trainers and, and uh, coordinators of, of these cases as they go forward? Yes. And the first hearings are set now for September in Cumberland County on the jury discrimination claims only. So uh, so that the defendant there is a, a young man by the name of Marcus Robinson In his case, he has claims that there was discrimination in the way that the death sentence was imposed and then the way that the prosecutors decided to bring the death sentence about. But those claims are, were kind of, were bifurcated from the jury claims, the claims that the prosecution has discriminated in the ways that they've selected the jury in his case and in in cases across the state. And that, that piece of it is going to trial in early September. And that's going ahead without, I mean, this this latest legislative effort is not having any effect on the scheduling of that trial. That's correct. Yeah, okay. We are uh, just about out of time for this program. And uh, as uh, as we uh, always do, we, we like to give uh, each of you an opportunity to give your, your, your closing thoughts on, on 
the topic at hand uh, and also to let our listeners know how they can follow up with you if they'd like more information uh, from you. Um, so, uh, Cassie, uh, let's start with you and get your, your final thoughts. Well, this is the Racial Justice Act is really a historic act. It's a, it's a historic piece of civil rights litigation that I think is really unprecedented. Kentucky, for a number of reasons, it goes farther than the Kentucky statute did. And, and we're very optimistic that it has the power to actually really look at the role of race and, and provide a remedy. If folks are interested in the case, in the case that I mentioned, the Cumberland County case or in the issue in general, you can get more information from our website. That's at aclu.org. Or you could feel free to contact me directly at cstubs at aclu.org. Thank you very much. And Jim Coleman, your final thoughts? I I agree with Kathy. I think that uh, the uh, legislation here in North Carolina uh, was extraordinary. Uh, that the uh, that the legislature passed it and the governor signed it into law. I think it's the first uh, time that any state has uh, taken a uh, you know taken the risk of opening up uh, the impact that race has on on the criminal justice system. Uh, and I think there's an opportunity for us both to learn and also to uh, to remedy a, a, a great injustice that's been done to uh, many of the people on death row whose cases were affected by uh, race. Thanks. And what's a, a good way for people to follow up with you or get more information about your work? Well, we, we have a, uh, the, the Duke Law School has a website, uh, law.duke.edu. Thank you very much. Well, thanks to both of you for taking the time to be with us today. Really appreciate We very much time. appreciate you being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. And Bob, for our listeners, we remember that you can now get CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts. You can go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. You can also find all of our shows on iTunes. That's right. And Craig, uh, thanks to you for uh, covering uh, for me while I was away last week. I understand you found Whitey Bulger while I was away. We located him, and he's now back in Boston where he belongs. <laughs> Very good. Thanks a lot. We'll be back again next week with another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.